Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show brought to you by you. You all power this. You have powered this since the very beginning and really do appreciate the platform you create for my silly self to check in with y'all on a weekly basis, talk about IndyCar, all driven by your questions Started this back in, I think, 2017. The podcast started in 16, but I believe we started doing this, I don't know, 2017, something like that, end of 16, I forget. But it was uh, me and my man Robin Miller, and we did these for about 20 minutes and used your questions, and I don't know how we did a 20-minute podcast, but we did. So, anyways... These can run, if you're a first-time listener, hour and a half, two hours, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on how exciting the race happened to be, if there's big news and movement going on in the paddock or whatever else. So can't tell you how long this one will be, but I'm guessing uh, two hours or so. So buckle in. Uh, if you got other things to do, well, come back and uh, listen later. Or for some of you who like hitting the one-and-a-quarter time speed, one-and-a-half I don't even want to know what I sound like at two or three times uh, the speed, but it's probably very chimpmunkish. But nonetheless, lots of great stuff to get to. All the questions put together by our pal Jim Kaiser, who was in attendance last weekend at the track that we formally refer to as WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. But for those of us who are locals, it's Laguna. <laughs> it's Laguna Seca. And you can put other names on top of it, and we'll reference it once uh, to comply with their little requests but nonetheless jim was at laguna uh, was able to bring his kids and just have a good old time uh, i didn't get to see him which i'm not too happy about that's my fault 100 percent. but i am glad that jim was able to attend and once again huge thanks to him for putting together your questions each week also cooper tires great to see uh, more more talent rising on the road to indy here those young drivers using Cooper tires the whole time should also mention our guest for uh, Wednesday's recording of our weekend IndyCar guest show. I've just decided to do something as I stutter a wee bit to do something that interests me. So Alex Polo, we love him. We're rooting for him. Pato Ward, we love him. We're rooting for him. Uh, Joseph Newgarden, similar love, similar rooting. It's pretty much impossible for Joseph to win the title. It's going to be settled between Alex and Pato nonetheless, but we love those guys. We speak to them frequently. I figured, you know what? I don't know how much there is to get out of them going into Long Beach where the odds are tipped so heavily in Alex's favor. So let's speak to one of those. Cooper Tire Shod, next generation star. So our guest for Wednesday's episode will be the Kyle Kirkwood, our man, kicking butt in Indy Lights, leading the championship, just swept the weekend at Laguna, and holy cow, do you want to talk about swept? In round one at Laguna, I think he had about a five-and-a-half-second lead built, then there was a caution, that went away, then he built out another good lead, won the race. On Sunday, <laughs> take it easy on him, kid. Like, what, a 26-second lead? One of the biggest ever in Indy Lights ever, ever? So, yeah, he and David Malukas, another young American star, uh, they're fighting it out. Kyle's got the points lead back, but 
One more weekend to go here, beginning of October, mid-Ohio. Two rounds, going to settle the Indy Lights Championship. But nonetheless, we're going to have Kyle on the show. Just, we're standing on faith that for Florida's amazing, young, open-wheel talent is indeed going to be an IndyCar next year. So look forward to having him on the show. Had him on the podcast once or twice before, but... Anyways, this time you're going to get to talk to him like he's an IndyCar star and throw in all kinds of great questions for him. Also, a big thanks, huge thanks to Justice Brothers, all that they do for us and have done for us for quite some time. And then finally, torontomotorsports.com. Oh, pay a visit. They have a lot of fine and fun things to buy. If you like motor racing memorabilia, t-shirts, hats, stickers, models, uh, all kinds of stuff, torontomotorsports.com is your place. Another little quick note there, uh, tend to buy and then try and sell seasonal items. Could be a driver uh, that is linked up with torontomotorsports.com. Keep in mind the season's about to end, so there's probably some really good merchandise to look at there that you might want to take home. I don't know if they're discounts. I didn't ask our man Derek Koska who runs torontomotorsports.com, but I'm guessing there might be. He's also selling... uh, some Robin Miller stuff at my request with all the proceeds going to charity. So mention on the Robin side, thank you to all of you who have bought the Robin Miller Memorial stickers with all the proceeds going to St. Jude's. Haven't done an update on that uh, on social media of what money's been sent there. Honestly, I've just been waiting to find a little break between this three week in a row IndyCar span to do that. But uh, we've sold a fair amount and I haven't been pushing them and I haven't been posting their availability for, I think most of this month now, just because on these kind of three and a half day stints between races, getting home, all the things we have going on on the home front appointments and chemo and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I just haven't had time to push them promote them and generate more uh, charity money there because I just don't have the time to put them all into envelopes and write addresses and lick stamps and that kind of stuff. So please don't take that as an excuse. Just I have intentionally dialed down the, hey, there's something cool you could get here to help uh, in the name of charity. Been waiting to get through Long Beach and then I'll make a stronger effort there again. So, but if you are interested Check out marshallpruittpodcast.com, go to our little merch page, and I think the Robin Memorial stickers might be the first thing sitting there. So, uh, nonetheless, there's that. Last thing or two before we get rolling with your Q&A. I'm going to take a sip of coffee here, which I shouldn't be doing at 6.59 p.m. on a Monday evening. want to just open my little heart and say how much I appreciate uh, so, so many of you who reach out in person, by email, by DM, by whatever communication method you prefer, the kindness, the care, the generosity, the just finest side of humanity that so many of you take the time to share and demonstrate it is i'm a person who makes a living 
not being able to speak very well into a microphone, but also writing words that are occasionally not terrible. Nonetheless, I make my living with words, and yet you all leave me in a pretty good state of flummoxing. Uh, just thank you. I, I'm running out of ways to say that, but I am constantly amazed and reminded and thinking of the amazing generosity with words, with prayers, with energy. Uh, there's just so much that comes our way. It's mostly for my wife, as it should be. Uh, some of it is for me, and it is greatly, greatly appreciated and used. Not going to try and make this too serious here. Just for those of you who do know, things have been a bear at home for a while. And believe it or not, the little keep your heads up and the little kindnesses and the little everythings that so many of you think to share, the thoughtfulness, <sighs> these things do make a difference and they are received by us. And I feel guilty a lot of the times when you all say these things, share these things, stop me, which has happened countless times now over the last two weeks at Portland and Laguna. Um, there's truly so many other people in the world who need those prayers and the everything else, the, the kind words, more than we do. It's not false modesty, it's fact. And yet, you all uh, continue embrace to embrace uh, this dumbass guy who covers motor racing uh he used to work on the other side in motor racing and his wife uh whom none of you i believe have met and uh she's an introvert not an extrovert so she's not popping on here all the time or whatever else but it i was sitting in the media center <clears throat> yesterday um before the race right before the race started and I'm just looking around, and I'm seeing many, many, many other reporters. And I am positive that some, if not many of them, have their challenges in life that are real. We all have challenges, so that's the obvious statement alert. But have real challenges they are facing, if not directly within their own lives and bodies, and otherwise a parent, a sibling, whomever. Um, it was just sitting there looking out upon many and realizing how crazy and amazing it is that you all have in just constantly uh, embraced us, embraced me, and made us feel like we are something, I don't know, important? Um worthy i don't know exactly what it is but just thinking about how much you all continually give to us with your spirit and warmth and love i just sat there staring at other folks truly asking why me why us like i i, I don't get it i don't understand it i try not to put too much thought into it because i'd probably it'd probably freak me out a little bit but um just thank you uh, so this is one of those, that idiot Pruitt guy just says thank you a lot to y'all. But you're just sitting there thinking about, I don't know why, but I, I 
and I don't, I don't need y'all to tell me why. Just saying. Um, thank you. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, another thing, too, again, I apologize if it's a little bit too serious to start off the show, but uh, was stopped by one friend, one old friend uh, in the IndyCar paddock. And obviously their identity and all that is not for sharing, but um, who told me that uh, they are uh, in a cancer fight right now. Another much older friend, much older acquaintance, uh, stopped uh, stopped me on Sunday to say they are in a, by comparison, massive cancer fight. And so oh, I heard about the passing of Russ Lake, a uh, super long time. Uh, photographer at the Indianapolis 500 and, and, and other places in the Midwest. And so one other person that I learned about that I used to know somewhat well a long time ago when I was a young race car mechanic who, uh, who died and there was a celebration of his life last weekend. So maybe that is why when I think about the, the constant kindness and all the folks that just say hello, stop, share something um, really kind and warm. I don't know. Maybe that's why these things are resonating with me more than usual. So there's all that. Uh, let's start off the show with a little piece of knowledge that I've gained as I uh, hit the little marker here. So we throw in some music bed. Uh, have been telling y'all for a couple months now that, hey, silly season, IndyCar, there's going to be a a lot of changes coming we know these things are now true uh most of them have not been announced right the formal announcement i've told you this person's going here this person's leaving there this person's just out altogether as of about a month ago a lot of those teams that were having these major driver changes uh they were all more or less planning to confirm, announce, and make big deals at Long Beach. And so mentioning to a number of them, just a little FYI, I know y'all want to have the day and to win the day with your news that driver A is signing with team B. Just letting you know, we might be crossing swords and streams in a little bit here because there's a number of y'all who are trying to do that same thing and it might dilute your respective efforts. So as of this morning with one more team checking in uh, as to whether they will be announcing this weekend, I think we're down to just one team that will. I, in the conversation that I had with that team, uh, they were telling me in confidence so i'll keep the name of that team the driver in confidence i will mention that within the next short amount of time i'll be writing that story um just to have that ready in advance for any whenever the quotes come down the pipeline but doesn't look like we're going to have the big long beach weekend full of revelations of who's going where and what's happening and so on and so on but I can tell you that I believe just about everything I've written in terms of major movement 
uh, is going to be confirmed here very, very shortly. And, hey, that's not a bad thing. Uh, also, we had the schedule come out. Only surprise for me was Detroit switching from the doubleheader it's been for quite a while to a, is a single header a thing? Is that even a word or a phrase? <laughs> I don't think so, but we'll go with it here. One-time use only, a single header. Uh, other than that, had written that there were two options for the St. Pete date. The first one that I had heard, uh, should I kind of say from the horse's mouth, mouth uh, of March 6th, turned out to not be the date. Uh, the city council chose uh, February, whatever, the last weekend in February. But yeah, uh, that was an interesting thing to discuss with IndyCar team members uh, after the race. I know that the season's ending early-ish, earlier than it is this year by, what, two weeks or so. I'll share with you that of the crew members that I spoke with, uh, some of them fairly new to IndyCar, a couple of years experience, some been around for decades. There was a somewhat universal wow, okay, uh, it feels like next year is going to be kind of long, and we're already worn out with this year's being a little shorter than expected. So not sure if the stretching it out but having a little bit more breaks in between events will bring down the general tiredness or if there'll just be a weariness over the, the duration no matter if the pacing slows down a little bit more than we have this year. But nonetheless, 17 rounds. Here we go. Uh, I don't want this one to end, but I am at least somewhat happy that next year starts, I think, sooner than ever. Speaking with my pal Mike Zizzo, former CART and IndyCar uh, comms director, uh, he's now working uh, with NTT Data. We were trying to figure out, can we remember a cart or champ car or even IRL or whatever season starting this early. And we couldn't come up with one. So maybe there is, and we just forgot it, but yeah, the idea of kicking off the IndyCar season at the end of February, that's a little funky. That's a little funky for sure. So, all right, well, it is time officially time to get rolling with your cues. And maybe if I'm not a total moron, I'll get some A's out to you that, uh, Kind of, sort of makes sense. I don't know. You trust me. We'll see if I maintain your trust by the end of the episode. All right, let's go. Kicking off here with our pal Hrishi Despond. We've got uh, a series of fun Laguna-related questions here, some a little more serious than others. But Hrishi opens the show with, now that both the squirrels and rabbits will be seeking revenge on Colton Hurt after Sunday, who should he fear more, an army of squirrels or an army of rabbits? Or maybe a joint force with both? He also asks, will Big Chungus be sent on a diplomatic mission to defuse tensions? I don't think uh, our big boy there does a lot of defusing. I think he intensifies tensions, Rishi. So, yeah, that, that's probably not the emissary. We will be dispatching to uh, Valencia, California in the uh, General Herta compound. Yeah... I was sad about the bunny rabbits. We used to have bunny rabbits when I was a kid, and I was in charge of feeding them and looking after them. 
Um, so I've, I have a soft spot for bunny wabbits, but yeah, that made me sad. I recall, I think I mentioned on the show before, I think it was a 1988 Laguna IndyCar race where Alan Jr. in his Gallus March 88 C, I forget what engine they had that year. Um, he hit a bunny rabbit, uh, right front corner and went into the side pod and yeah. Uh, I remember the camera zooming in when he came into pit lane and then I think zoomed out a little bit because, oh, the poor bunny wabbit, uh, he, he, uh, he or she, uh, got into the side pod. The remnants of the bunny rabbit, uh, interrupted the radiator from radiating and the temperatures start getting high and then a crew member and i don't know who but i feel bad for this person had to reach their hand in and pull out uh exploded bunny rabbit parts and so yeah that's one of those things where you go okay signed up to do a lot as a motor racing mechanic um this is yeah this might not be too pleasant so I don't know what we do. I, I generally don't know what we do. I mean, the, the track is in the middle of a state park. Um, wildlife. Hey, they're wild and they live. And they tend to go across the track whenever they feel like it. So I don't know what we do. I'm glad, though, we're not talking about deer or tall wildlife that could really cause problems. So there's that. Thanks for the, the kind of fun uh, but turned into a little bit of a gross opening question. Rishi, uh, our man Daniel Summersgill says, what would you say that Laguna Seca was, or would you say that Laguna Seca was Romain Grosjean's most satisfying race of the season so far? says, hashtag me personally. Yes, he has had two podiums already, but he had to work hard for his third place Sunday after the weekend started so ominously with the pace car incident on Friday. Would absolutely agree that it sure looked like it was his most satisfying event of the year, Daniel. I'd heard, and from a very well-placed source, that not only did Roma uh, total the pace car, but I'm informed that he, <laughs> I don't know how hard the hit was or if she was injured or just surprised and inconvenienced, but I'm told from someone who witnessed it that he also hit someone on his scooter, his little e-scooter thing. Don't know how fast he was going. Don't know how hard she was hit. Uh, but I'm told that, yes, there was a fan-based uh, incident. But I believe everyone went on and kept going. Um, yeah, from crashing the pace car to crashing the podium, the Romain Grosjean story. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. Wow. So... Uh, if we strip away the unintended running into of things, Daniel, this is the thing that drivers just dream of. Give me the opportunity to tear ass the whole time, uh, to close this race. Give me something to allow me to do so. And it just becomes cartoonish video game like fun. Remember this from however many years ago with Ryan Hunter Ray at Iowa, where he pitted late, late in the game. Everyone else is on well-used rubber. He decided, what the heck, let me pit, put on new tires, 
went out, just destroyed everybody. Like he was in a different race, wins the thing, right? And you go, how fun. Well, this is not taking anything away from Romain. There was a difference in tire age and quality between himself and Alex Pillow. Uh Colton Herta as well. Colton up front did the final stint on new Firestone primary tires. Alex did the final stint on used Firestone primaries. And Roman did the final stint on new Firestone alternates. And as Colton told us after the race and in a little story that I posted, to everyone's surprise, the alternates were the hot ticket. They lasted way longer than anyone anticipated. And again, that was the hot, hot setup. Well, as we saw, there was a strategery call made, which benefited Romain to close the race. And because the Dale Coin Racing with Rick Ware Racing outfit said, hey, we're going to consume our primaries early and try and end on a high note with the alternates. Well, Colton up front, uh, they went a little bit opposite direction and ran on reds for a good while. And then uh, same with Alex and were left with their primary options to close the race. And so because of great strategy and because of great driving, you had this ridiculous dynamic of Romain taking one second a lap or so off of Alex. Keep in mind that Colton was even farther up the road leading, also dealing with a little bit of traffic at times too. But there were some laps where Romain was two seconds faster than Colton. Again, the distance was great enough to where there was no real concern that he was going to catch the leader, but good Lord, he was flying. So you have someone on great tires when those he's pursuing are probably not on as great a tire. You have someone who is supremely confident in his car. His race engineer, Olivier Boisson, obviously did an amazing job with setup. And so you just have this perfect storm, Daniel of those up front doing their best driving hard, but somewhat pace limited throwing a little bit of traffic and that adds more complexity to it. And then you got the guy who's just flying like an Eagle Phoenix in his case, but just flying free as can be attacking. No concern whatsoever. Only thing that I think prevented Alex becoming a real target. He might get by was that clash late with uh, Jimmy Johnson at the corkscrew. You remove that, you put another couple seconds, or you remove a couple seconds uh, from the deficit, and yeah, he crossed the line, what, 1.7 seconds behind Alex? I can't tell you exactly how much time was lost in the deal with Jimmy, but it feels like it might have been, what, two seconds or so, one or two seconds, maybe even three. So again, except for that, we might be talking about the guy in second might be talking about the championship being a little bit closer, even though still somewhat remote, but, uh, for Pato, but the championship being a little bit closer, a little bit more interesting heading into long beach had Pelo finished third. So yeah, um, a dream scenario, Daniel, truly, I can think of one time in my brief two-ish 
year open wheel racing adventure in a uh, formula Ford where I don't remember the exact race, but I do recall that it was raining and we had a brand new set of, I think, Goodyear rain tires. And at least in this period, a really long time ago, those were the hottest rain tire you could get on the amateur Formula Ford racing level. And for whatever reason, the majority of the others that I was around were on some other brand. And I'm just saying, man, I felt like Ayrton Senna in the wet in my 1980 Tiga, Tiga, Formula Ford, whatever. Um, I, it, it was insane, right? It was just insane. Fi- grip was magically appearing where it was not appearing for many, many others. Now, those who are truly talented and in qualified f- way farther up, I was never going to get to them, even with the, the amazing tire advantage that I had. But at least for those who had similar levels of talent, uh, as your uh, reporter here, I can report to say that I just ate them for lunch. They, there was nothing they could do, but it wasn't me. It was the tires. So in this case, you have Romain, where it was certainly him. <laughs> Even if the guy was on new or used primaries, uh, it just feels like he was on such a charge. I don't know if he would have gotten by everybody that he did, but he was raging and that was so much fun daniel so i know what it's like to have that thing where you go "Ooh, uh, i'm a little bit better than those around me and that elevates my approach whatever intensity that i would normally have there's just an extra gear here where you go ha 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 that was sunday for roma so uh, so happy for him texted him after the race congratulating him he responded warmly which was a surprise um i thought that text was just going to go out and never be returned but hey so anyways <sighs> alex polo if he wins the title is going to be one of the greatest stories we've seen in recent years pato award if he were to win same exact thing one of the greatest stories we can tell uh that has happened the youth movement, the international flair uh, involved with this that will hopefully bring in more audience, more followers, whether from Spain, Mexico, Spanish-speaking world in general, um, two guys that are only in their second full-time season of IndyCar. I mean, we can run down the list of all the things where you go, wow, this is going to be amazing. One of the two of those guys are going to win the championship. I still don't know if either of those stories will beat Romain Grosjean finishing whatever it ends up being, 14th in the championship or you know whatever. I still don't think, Daniel, we're going to have a single thing happen this year. If we're talking you know, year-long arc, let's talk about the major items that stood out. The love affair that has emerged between Romain Grosjean and IndyCar and then coming back his way from IndyCar fans to Romain Grosjean. This year-long love affair, bringing his family with him, the traveling the country in a motorhome and shooting his videos and sharing his life. (sighs) Give me something else 
that that is just more heartwarming, more surprising. Um, this is a gift. Like this guy is a gift to us. The driving side, we know that. The guy's crazy talented, has been forever. The fact that he's been able to come here in less than one full season, uh, seemingly achieve the American dream. All the things that he never had in Formula One, except for that one season with Lotus, but effectively 90% of his Formula One career was something where full satisfaction was not there. Uh, The fact that he's been able to come to America, reach heights within himself that I don't know if he'd forgotten about or thought might have set sail or what it is, but the amount of fulfillment that we see within him, Daniel, and and I thank you for asking this so we can just spend a little bit of time giving him some love. Um, If you're an empathetic person, this guy's your hero. This guy's your favorite driver. Um, If you don't really care about that stuff and you're just more of an X's and O's and black and white and finishing records and that kind of stuff, I still wonder if Groschon is kind of making you feel a little misty-eyed every now and then. When's the last time we had an IndyCar driver make us feel a little bit misty-eyed? Probably it'd be someone that won the Indy 500. And as they should make us feel misty-eyed, seeing their reaction, how much it has meant to them. When's the last time someone conjured these kinds of feelings within us? He's never even done the Indy 500 who's only done one oval race, who hasn't won a race yet. And yet we feel like he's a gift to us. He's reminding us how amazing IndyCar is, how much it can mean to someone. For those of us, again, who've maybe been around it for a long time, and it's not that you become jaded, just look, you do anything for 10, 20, 30 years, follow whatever not going to have the same freshness and crispness that it did in the beginning. How awesome is it to see IndyCar through the lens of Romain Grosjean and to be reminded of how powerful a, uh, a medicine it can be for the soul, for your spirit, uh, for that competitive animal inside of you. Like we could talk about this guy all day, what he's done, what he's given back, what he's making us feel. Like, this guy is truly a massive gift to us. Brian Hayward, you're next. He says, what exactly are the blue flag rules in IndyCar? Funny you should ask, Brian. I was wondering the same dang thing uh, on Sunday. He says, I understand when a car fights, stay in the lead lap, but once the leader is clear and past you, aren't you obligated to let other faster cars through? says, why were lapped cars allowed to stay in front of Polo once Herta had gotten by? I had the same question, truly. I'm thinking the same thing during the race. Again, I'll just, for the sake of, of clarity, Alex Pillow, great friend of the show, all those things, we love him to death, etc., etc. I wasn't thinking this because Alex was being slowed. I was thinking, like you, I think, Brian, hey, the leader has just lapped someone. And that person isn't now fighting back and running right on the, the gearbox of the leader and is likely to take the position back. No, they've been passed. 
They're a lap down and the gap is growing and growing and growing. This person is really and truly a lap down and let's respect the fact that their day has gone from bad to pretty much over. Why then would the driver in second place in this situation below could be anybody. Why would there not be heavily enforced blue flags and or communications from IndyCar? Hi team, tell your driver to let the second place person by. And if the third place person is coming up, let them go as well. And fourth and fifth, you're not in the fight. Really wondered that now there's two other angles to this very quickly. Well, I don't understand this, and it sure seemed to me that, yeah, there should have been a very clear instruction of, hey, uh, move over. Since there was no move over, we had some drama come in. We had Alex being slowed, and as a result, we just had this amazing thing happen. We just covered off with Daniel. Hey, Romain Groschamp. He brought drama to what might have been a total lack of drama uh, to close this race. That's the other big gift. Hey, Colton Herta ran off and more or less hid. Uh, then we had Alex able to claw that back, run within a second or two when Colton was being slowed and couldn't get by a train of cars for a while. That lead fell down to like six tenths of a second. But again, Alex didn't. Alex didn't have the pace to outrun Colton. He said it. He acknowledged it. It was clear. Frankly, it was clear from Saturday morning that this was going to be an Andretti event. And I expected the Ganassi cars to be good, but even in qualifying, it's very clear that there was just a tenth or two missing. And once you get through qualifying and that's missing, other than throwing a radical setup change to try and find it, you're not going to find it. And if you're the championship leader and you've just qualified fourth or whatever Alex was, uh, you don't throw a radical setup change at the car to try and find that tenth or two that's missing. You stay in the ballpark of what you have and just do, try and do your best in the race. So all the stuff being said, if blue flags had gone right out and or IndyCar had given directives to the lapped cars to move over immediately, part like the Red Sea, so Alex Plow and his blue IndyCar could go through, it still wasn't going to make a darn bit of difference in him catching uh, and outrunning Colton Herta. So... Totally agree with your question, and the I don't understand it either. Wouldn't have made a difference here, uh, even if they were on it right away. I do also maybe appreciate the fact that since they didn't, we did get some spice to close the event. What are we going to remember? Are we going to remember in a couple of years' time that Colton Herta won his second consecutive Firestone Grand Prix uh, at Laguna Seca? Maybe. What are we definitely going to remember? The crazy charge uh, from Groschon. Yeah, this little blue flag thing, man, actually did help. Uh, let's go to Jeff Egger. Hey, Jeff. Uh, he says, good to see you back at the track. Thanks, man. He says, I uh, see you're still sporting the plaid. Rock on. Well, yeah, I don't know why. It, it's not, I own, it's funny. Is it funny? I don't know. It's dumb, probably. The only plaid shirts that I own and wear are the ones that you see in and around racing. Now, I will admit that when we are going to our various appointments, I'll often grab one of those and throw them on. But just 
outside of racing and what would I wear? Like, I don't know why I chose plaid many, many years ago, but I have, and I now have many of them. So I'm trying to rotate through a few that have been sitting in the closet and really never been worn. So last weekend, the one on Sunday, the purplish one, thank you for nobody saying I looked like, looked like Barney, by the way. Uh, I don't think I'd ever worn that one on camera. Maybe the one on Saturday as well. So see fashion sense of which I have none. I am at least thinking about in somewhat comedic sense. So thanks for uh, mentioning that. Uh, I said, seriously, I love the hamburger and French fry show. Well, you also say you love the writing of the podcast, but you know, come on, man, you can't be that silly. Uh, but Jeff does mention this is his first submission and I love it when y'all let me know that you're writing in for the first time. So there's a couple of comments and questions. First comment is that I was never a Sebastian Bourdais fan, but your interview has really changed my mind on him a couple of years ago. And he's now one of my favorites. Ah, Jeff, that's awesome. I can't stand the guy, but at least you like him. Uh, he says, why was Groshans hit and run uh, on Jimmy Johnson? Not avoidable contact. Honestly, I'm glad uh, it was not as I don't like races or games uh, to be over officiated. What says you? Also mentions best to uh, my wife and the cats. Thank you. Uh, I'm not totally sure on on how well, Kyle Novak is, is running the race as race director, but his race stewards, uh, I'm not sure how they did or didn't view uh, the contact between Jimmy and Roman at the top of the hill there. We know from radio communications that uh young mr johnson was asked to not make it easy for groshan to get by and i would say he achieved that obviously the ganassi driver being asked to not make it easy for the non-ganassi driver to get past and then go try and catch and pass another ganassi driver in polo so not sure I guess you could just paint it as, hey, incidental contact. Uh, Romain was being very forceful. I would say I would expect him to be so in that situation. Uh, getting by Jimmy, who I don't remember what position he was at that point in time, but keep in mind, Romain's running third. Jimmy would have been 17th, 18th, something like that. I could look at the lap chart and see if he was a lap down by then. We would have to think so uh, or imagine so. Uh, since the others would have gotten by in first and second. But, yeah, um, I get it. We've seen, I don't know, maybe on Sunday, Felix Rosenquist being very hard to pass, um, possibly making life a little extra challenging for Andretti Autosport to try and help Pato Award to uh, move forward and maybe, you know, get below, get whatever. This games man, games womanship for sure, Jeff, we see it. It plays out. It's it's not hidden. It's not secret. Hi, if the driver on our team that's not having a great day can do something to advantage our driver who is, you're going to see it. That, to me, was very much the personification of what happened between Jimmy and Romain. Uh, you just don't like to see that coming with contact. Um, I'm assuming here... But knowing that Jimmy's doing his very first race at Laguna, and I know he's tested there once or twice. I was there for, I think, one of them, maybe two, I don't remember. But uh, not a guy who's been in battle mode at Laguna before to really know 
where the passes may or may not happen at all times. But I would say, I bet if we wound the uh, the digital tape back, <laughs> probably would have seen on Sunday and maybe at other points in time during the weekend, Jimmy being passed down the inside at the corkscrew. So part of me says, okay, maybe he doesn't know that this is a place where some pretty epic passes take place. Some guy named Zanardi might have done something memorable there. Uh, our pal Renger Van de Zanda in sports cars pulled off the, the prototype version of the pass there. It's a place where passes happen. I'll give Jimmy the benefit of the doubt to say maybe he's not as so well-versed with that being the case. But again, I feel like if we were to look back at other portions of the weekend, maybe the race as well, he might have been passed there by someone else. So it looked like a little bit of a clumsy thing, Jeff. Uh, the way that Jimmy tried to close the door a little bit, they clashed, broke the, uh, the the mounting on Romain's right rear side pod. The little tire ramp came up from its uh, its little stay uh, on the floor, but it, that didn't affect the car's performance. What did affect things, though, was that little clash lost, as we mentioned, Romain just enough time to uh, really prevent him from getting to Alex and taking second place off of him. So if I am a race steward, if I'm a driver steward, I am giving Johnson an official warning of hi. We just saw it. We know what happened. We know that it wasn't a total oops. I didn't even know you were there. We know the reason we understand the reason we know that's part of the game. Don't do that too heavily. Don't, Make contact with the guy you're trying to not give an easy pass to. We're going to put you on notice here. Uh, not quite a timeout, but we're going to put you on notice. If this happens again uh, within the next, name the amount of period. I mean, you could say one race. There's only one race left. But, hey, uh, for the next six months, we're going to keep an eye on you. If this happens again, you're going to come visit us on pit lane during the race. And we'll make sure that you remember this should never be done again. And we're going to ruin your race because you're a lap down and you're making contact with people. And whether you're trying to help your teammate or not, eh, that's not something we can endorse. So that's what I would say, Jeff. I don't know if that's what they thought. I don't know if that's what they did. But uh, other than that, I thought Jimmy had a freaking amazing race, by the way. Uh, So happy for him. That this was his best race that I've seen, where he looked comfortable. He was fast. Uh, he was not having to just let uh, some more experienced drivers go easily. He was he was in a groove. Uh, it was really fun to see. I know it was very rewarding for him. All right, couple more Laguna Seca questions, and then we are going to move on to some other things. Uh, let's see. Right turn lover, our pal from Europe, says, How old is the track surface in Laguna by now? <sighs> Don't hold me to it, right turn lover, but I feel like mid to late 2000s it might have been paved. Uh, I can't tell you which presidential administration. It feels like Bush would have been our president. Definitely not Obama. I don't think it was Obama. Certainly not Trump. Um <sighs> I don't know. Uh, I couldn't predict who our future presidents are going to be or if the track will be resurfaced by then, whether Biden gets reelected, 
uh, Trump is uh, elected or I don't know who else. I just feel like uh, we might be through at least one more election before that track gets resurfaced. Uh, I can't really go into it. Had an interesting call not too long before I started recording with someone very much in the mix at Laguna. And yeah, there's a, a general agreement or understanding that a lot of the big promises that were made with the management changeover and, you know, hey, we're going to tear this down and put that up and we're just going to improve everything and make this, uh, you know, we're going to do a full renovation of the circuit, including repaving the, uh, the track surface itself. Not a lot of those things have happened. Uh, granted, we know COVID's been a big impact. Hasn't been a ton of funding coming in because there haven't been a whole lot of uh, races with fans there. But regardless, there's still a lot of stuff that hasn't happened. And I don't know if there's a timeline for any of those things to truly happen. You can say they're going to happen, but the actual behind the scenes, oh, and this is where the budget's going to come from. This is where the fundraising's happening. These are the real things to make them true. I'm unaware of those things. I was just discussing that with a friend uh, just a little while ago. But we'll mention, uh, I, I thought that the new management, uh, Nari, A&D Narigi, I thought they did a pretty darn good job of putting on the motor race. All the little areas that I would interact with, uh, from the volunteers to just infrastructure side and how things are run, it seemed like things were pretty darn smooth and efficient. So would it been would it have been done better under the previous scramp uh, organization? I don't know. I know that there are some people who are involved there that I would say are truly excellent at their jobs, and I don't know if they've been replaced by folks with the same degree of excellence, but I can tell you without a doubt uh, as someone who loves his local circuit, and I think someone sent in a question saying, I'm always tearing it down. That's not true. But anyways, um, that circuit has been under managerial dumpster fire for a really long time. Variety of different people, various problems, different from one administration to the next. Keeping a mindful eye on those things continuing with this new group and gotta admit if i saw things that were clearly negligent i'd tell you i'm sure there are some things i am not seeing and haven't seen and who knows but at least my own experience going there for a super long time under various administrations over the years this felt as calm and smooth and straightforward as the best of times so uh, big, big congratulations to them. Uh, let's see. So I have no idea when they're going to repave it. I know that it's been quite some time, but I'm unaware of a budget to do that. Um, uh, Andrew Miller, you also mentioned, you say in the uh, the Peacock sessions on NBC, uh, they were consumed with a lot of pavement talk. Uh, you said, am I misremembering that a repave is coming or scheduled? Yeah, they, they did say that, uh, I seem to recall in their proposal or whatever, that they plan to start raising the funding for that within a year, two, three, whatever the takeover. We have to keep COVID in mind and kind of subtract 2020 from that. Um, but again, I, I don't know of where the money would come from right now. So even if it's on the books for a particular date, 
who's going to pay for it? Uh, Mike Stoop says, we heard over the PA at Laguna, or heard over the PA that Laguna, um, there's been an extension for three more years, but I haven't read anything official. Says, what do you know? Um, yeah, I think I got a press release somewhere uh, after the schedule was announced Sunday morning that uh, indeed um, there is a multi-year extension. And as is the norm, uh, when that schedule announcement goes out, you get a flood of other press releases from the tracks. So we'll admit that I think I had a, had a long video interview with Zach Brown scheduled for about 20 minutes, I think, after the press release came out. And so other than making sure the uh, advanced story that I'd written or that I'd, yeah, whatever, making sure that everything was going forward to go out when it was supposed to, I think my brain, Mike, was focused a little bit on the next task. And so somewhere in there, I do believe I saw uh, some form of extension press release go out. So, yeah, uh, cool. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that we get to go back. Um, I of the other things that I spend time hoping on, uh, one of them is that there's a bigger crowd next year and the year after and the year after because that was the only uh, that was the only negative to the event. There just weren't enough fans, not by any stretch. Had heard even by Friday that uh, yeah, sales in general were just not uh, not what they had hoped. There was a, a definite desire that the the walk up sales and and all that kind of stuff, the kind of last minute orders for Sunday, um, would be strong. And I heard that there was something decent there happening. But again, if you watched it on television, you or you were there in person you could tell that there was a little bit too much free real estate to be covered. All right. I am looking, by the way, at a uh, little updated piece of artwork from our fine man, Roger Work, who does all the, the show tunes and whatnot, the Week in IndyCar, Week in Sports Cars as well, the little uh, uh, stickers and, uh, and whatnot that I post here with the show. So just got a new updated one from Roger that yeah, it is all kinds of brilliant. And uh, hopefully y'all will get to see this very, very soon. Uh, let's see, where do we go next? Um, Javi, you're asking about uh, performance of the track management. Just kind of covered that off. Um, Ed Joris asking, do I think uh, Laguna IndyCar will draw, draw a bigger crowd next season when IMSA and IndyCar are not back-to-back. I would hope. I wasn't at the IMSA event, obviously. It was at Portland. But from what I heard, whatever level of disappointment for crowd size that I had for the IndyCar event would have been quadrupled if I were at the IMSA event from what those who were there told me. Uh, those who are obviously at both. Um, yeah, so maybe the separation will help. I don't know what the answer is, Ed, and I had this conversation with a variety of people throughout the weekend. Uh, there was a story that I think I read on what New York Times about, at least as of last weekend, California had the lowest, lowest COVID infection rates 
of all the states. So you go, okay, well, why are folks staying away? In the theory, it's not because of COVID. Okay. Um, what else would it be? Have the prices gone up? I actually don't know. I'm embarrassed, but like ticket price is just not something I ever have a reason to look at because I have a annual credential that grants me access to the event. So, but I don't know if the ticket prices went up and that scared people off. I don't know what it was, but maybe one of the things of having back to back, uh, you know, somewhat major series coming to the track on consecutive weekends, maybe breaking that up will indeed help a little bit. Uh, last question here. James counter says MP. Did you get a chance to do anything regarding having fried chicken, a fried chicken dinner with Alex Pillow? Did not last weekend failed there. Did have a mighty fine dinner Saturday night with Mike Hall. And, uh, he happened to see IndyCar just awesome person in general. But it also it's the longest-term communications employee, Arnie Sreben. I happened to see Arnie in the restaurant and invited him to come join us, and that was amazing. And so we had a great time. Mike is a master storyteller. There's a reason why he has been our guest on the Weekend IndyCar more than anyone else. It's just because he's Mike freaking Hull, but also just great stories told. And I don't think I can repeat any of them. But <laughs> some great ones. And uh, not my brother, Scott Pruitt, was sitting at the table next to us, gifted us a bottle of his uh, Syrah, a bottle of his uh, wine from his vineyard. So posted a little something about that on, I think, the tweeters. Uh, yeah, it's weird, y'all, to be drinking from a bottle of wine with your name on it. Um, although I have nothing to do with that, and he and I aren't related. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he and I have actually been close for quite a while even though we aren't related, but we are both guys from the general Bay Area, Northern California, and both in IndyCar and sports cars and you name it. And uh, yeah, so he's been a good friend. Uh, sent a couple bottles our way during the holidays. And so it's just cool to be there and to be drinking Scott Pruitt wine next to Scott Pruitt um, while being a Pruitt, sharing a table with a uh, Sreben and a Hull. So, but to your finer question here, while we did not achieve uh, chicken dining last weekend, James, I uh, did ring Alex today and say, hey, realize you got a championship. You're going to go and try and win. Realize that last race of the year, it's not uncommon for a team to say, hey, we're going to have a team dinner. Everybody, drivers, mechanic, everybody, you're going to go rent out someplace and have a big dinner or might have a big sponsor thing. So I realized that Friday night and Saturday night, you might be preoccupied but if you're not roscoe's chicken and waffles just right down from the track let's go do that so he said he's going to let me know going to look at his schedule obviously see if and what his uh bosses at chip ganassi racing have to say about his evenings but if he happens to be free um i do believe y'all there will be some consumption of not just chicken but also waffles uh, by the one and only IndyCar driver who's a member of our podcast listener group. Uh, so how do you like that? Uh, Matt, T-E-I, all caps, T-E-I, from Reddit. First time questioner says, hey, Marshall, IndyCar newbie here. Says the 2022 schedule came out. 
And there are honestly not enough changes, he says, with the exception being the Iowa doubleheader in the Music City Grand Prix. Anyway, my question is, is IndyCar's schedule not exciting enough? The sport appears to not visit some iconic tracks. You mentioned Richmond, Circuit of the Americas, etc. And I'm honestly worried as IndyCar's two big rivals are both adding tracks next year. It's an interesting angle, Matt, and thanks for uh, sending in a question for the first time. So there's this thing I'm sure you know about. It's called date equity. And it's a phrase that, boy, people who run racing series in North America love to mention that. And I get it. And I understand what has value. Date equity. We want folks to know that every year, more or less, the last weekend in May, Labor Day, whatever. Is that Labor Day? I always forget what holiday it is. But anyways, end of May, you're going to have your Indy 500. Middle of April, you're going to have your Long Beach Grand Prix. Uh, again, you can middle of June. I'm sorry, middle of July, you're going to have your Toronto GP. A number of of dates on the calendar where you know where they're going to be year after year, and so that date equity, fans knowing that they can make sure to request vacation time at this specific period before. Five years from now, we can talk about the 2026 schedule or 27. In theory, you can put in for your uh, your, your time off to fly out to Long Beach because you know somewhere in the middle of April that's going to happen. You can probably pick the date right now. So I get that. And with that comes a desire, with that consistency, to keep going back to the same places. Now, just step back a moment to Monterey, which I just mentioned. It's my home track. One of my two home tracks. I love it. I want it to succeed like you wouldn't believe. But if next year, in the year after, in however long this contract is, if it still looks like a bit of a ghost town, I hope for IndyCar's sake, they say Monterey, we love you. We hope to see in the future. But you're doing nothing for us. right? We know that sponsors love coming here. There's value there. That's nothing to do with TV ratings or, or uh, ticket sales and looking healthy and, and vital and just, ugh. but Hey, our sponsors love it. So we'll keep coming out. But I think there would have to be an honest reckoning in saying, you know what? We love you. <laughs> we do. We really do. But we look weak. We look unimportant. We look like, eh, if you were wondering about whether you should come out, don't bother because despite all the pluses, wow, it's in a beautiful part of the world. It's right next to the ocean. There is amazing food. There's golfing like you, just some of the world's best golfing. There, run down the list of all the things that you're going to find in greater Monterey. And you don't have to sell anybody on it. It's well known to be all kinds of awesome. And you still can't get many people to come out. If the locals aren't fully responding to this, why would folks elsewhere think to spend money in plane tickets and rental cars and hotels and do all this to come out? If even the locals don't feel like it's worth attending. So just to your point, that's where I wonder, does there need to be a bit of a harsher 
perform or you're gone type thing that uh, Penske Entertainment Entertainment needs to uh, employ. I don't know. That's the thing. I'm not saying it's right. It could be a thousand percent wrong. Uh, but just are there places where you might say, you know what? It just doesn't look like there's there's enough going on here to warrant continuing. So unless we can unless we can come up with something that really works, we're gonna have to to say farewell and hope we see you once again. So that's my thought there. And maybe that fits into your general premise of, well, if there's not a lot going on, then should we try something else? Is there somewhere else we should go that might be new? If it's maybe an old place we haven't been to for a while, but we think you mentioned Richmond. We know that was planned, uh, fell through because of COVID, but is this something we should give a whirl? Is there an experimentation element that's lacking? Uh, I, I think that's the, the greater point you're raising here, Matt. I don't know if this ownership group is the one to embrace free-spiritedness. In a very broad sense, Roger Penske doesn't do things that are unsure and freewheeling and a little bit off the cuff. That's not who he is. Therefore, that's not how his organization operates. But I do think you're on to something here. We've mentioned this on the show before. I don't know. It's been six months, a year, whatever. We mentioned it a couple times, but just, and I'm sure others have written about it or, or spoken about it too, just the concept of do we need to keep one date per year uh, for that playtime? Hi, let's go here. It may fail, but let's try. Maybe it won't. I do notice that if we just keep going to some of these tracks that don't exactly blow up uh, the box office and just pack the house, well, I, I know we're probably not going to change anything, not change our fortunes for the better, but <sighs> Coda, you mentioned, I, I think Coda, well, Coda was dead on arrival when it started. It's never going to be a success with IndyCar there. It's just, yeah, NASCAR, sure. Formula One, without a doubt. MotoGP, yes. There's just not enough of a traveling fan base to fill Coda for IndyCar, and there's not enough fans locally to make it look more more than a glorified test. Was there uh, was there for what it was for a very brief period in IndyCar's world? And yeah, um, that one's not happening. But I'm with you. On the NASCAR's going where? LA Coliseum? That's crazy. Hey, they're doing an event on dirt. Hey, they're trying more of that. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll just close on this, Matt. Spoke with someone else this weekend. I don't remember who. I got to admit, I apologize. But uh, if you're listening, I suck. But you knew that. Um, speaking with someone this weekend about SRX and how the fun playfulness that they brought to their inaugural season is something that IndyCar, again, I think would benefit from. Is doing things Saturday night on NBC on whatever 
rare window there'd be free Saturday nights for NBC, I guess. But is there something to a Saturday night street race somewhere on NBC like SRX had for however many weeks in a row on CBS? Again, big network, generated big results. A lot of reasons behind it, you know, get all that. It's it's not just, um, there's no single reason for it, but is there just something that seems a little bit too buttoned down and predictable from IndyCar when it comes to its choice of venues and its approach to those events to where maybe it's holding itself back a little bit? I think you're on to something, Matt. I don't know how much of an improvement would be made if they loosened things up a little bit and said, hey, we're going to go here. (laughs) <laughs> again I, we don't even know if anyone's going to show up but let's just go and try um i just don't know if their personality fits there my friend thanks for sending this in uh continuing the first timer z uh the twitter name is at geek chico no i'm sorry i gotta break up things geek chic ohio um with a screen name of cootie shots change your dna uh i don't want to know what any of that means but i just read it um first time caller and i'm a little less than half serious but it's been 12 races how is there still so little consensus among indycar media about how to pronounce romain Grosjean? and has anyone considered asking romain indeed Someone has. Was it uh, our friend, the Retro Rebel, maybe? Maybe someone else did? I forget. But I do recall his answer was, to: if you say his name as quickly as possible, you will mangle it the least amount. I know that our French fry, for example, when I think I said Romain Grosjean in our Sunday hamburger and French fry show, I uh, said Romain Gauchon, whatever I said. I don't know if I put any accent on it, but I pronounced the R in Romain. Seb repeated his name back to me in his answer and used the R. But then when he made his next reference, he buried the R, which is the correct French pronunciation. It's more of a, it's more of kind of a throat, Romain, right? It's not a row, it's a and while I took three years of high school French, I think I passed half of those years, maybe one and a half years. How do you pass a year and a half of three? I don't know. Um, I could speak non-functional French. I could say a couple phrases after those three years. Uh, nonetheless, I do have a vague understanding of how to pronounce his name but I know that I am so out of practice and just lacking the ability to do it truly with true accuracy. I bail out and just go with Romain Grosjean. Uh, but there's a lot of throat, a lot of to get it correct. So should I just shift that to pronouncing his name as Seb, how did you think did today? Maybe I should do that, but I kind of got to hold my throat. I don't know if I can. Yeah, I could do without holding my throat with my hand. So maybe that's the trick. Maybe this weekend I'm just going to bail out altogether 
and uh, ask him to speak about and maybe that kind of Chewbacca-esque pronunciation of his name, maybe that becomes the official way. If I could get, I was about to say Romad by mistake. If I could get to actually pronounce his name that way and stick with it, that might be the greatest achievement of my life. Um, other than marrying my wife. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But what we haven't had, the, the bigger surprise, I know you mentioned after all these races, how is there no single way to do it? What I'm really blown away by is there's no, to my knowledge, great nickname for him that would replace or supplant his real name. Uh, right? There's been some attempts. I think uh, Ricky Big Jeans or whatever, uh, something along those lines. But where's where's a great Americanized nickname for him doesn't necessarily have to play off of his exact name but just something where you go hell yeah i would want to be called that while in a freaking honky-tonk bar in the state of oklahoma like give me that nickname where if he were to say that was his name meeting americans on this cross-country trek in a motorhome folks would say you talk funny son but you got a hell of a name I need your help coming up with that. Uh, let's see. Sean Lee. Is it that Pato can't get on top of the tires or is it Air McLaren SP? Okay. So I think there's been, I know there's been a false narrative painted here by our friends at NBC Sports. Now, there have been a time or two where a man Pato award has driven too hard and worn out his tires uh, faster than he should have. And the reason for that was strictly him. He had resource on the car, that resource being tires. And like someone with a single bottle of water, modestly sized bottle of water, to bring with them on, say, a super long hike. Instead of managing that water consumption and making sure that even though you're really thirsty halfway through, you still leave yourself some uh, to get to the finish properly. Well, couple races very early in the year. Seemed to recall last year as well, maybe, but he, he downed the bottle pretty quickly and paid the price. I think what has happened, though, inaccurately and unfairly, and this happens sometimes, and it's not limited to IndyCar broadcasters. You run across this in every other sport where you get a thing stuck in your mind about someone. Oh, this person always loves to dribble to their left in this kind of defense. And so you're going to keep mentioning that every time you see that basketball player going up against a team, trying to play man-to-man or zone coverage, whatever it might be. But you just, right, and after a while you go, okay, guess what? This team is playing that team tonight, and I guarantee you that good old broadcaster such-and-such is going to trot out on here, you know, so-and-so loves to go to their left in this coverage scheme, and you go, oh, my God, I know. And the player knows it, and the other team knows it. So you know what's probably going to happen? 
they probably acknowledged this that this is a known thing and done something to change or rectify it because otherwise they'd be really predictable and bad and lose we can apply that here to pato where yes the kid drives very hard and was not perfect at managing his tires but it happened a couple times and i think it has just sunk in as a constantly mentioned thing as if he's made no improvements on that end isn't aware that it's a problem isn't aware that this has to be improved for him to be more competitive um i don't know if enough credit is given to the fact that this kid has developed so far uh so far beyond where he was last year as a full-time rookie so just sharing here and i'm not saying i don't know if this question sean is coming in from you as a result of what you were hearing during the broadcast or what but um i don't view this as so much of a thing with pato anymore what i will say is this kid is driving like so much harder than he wants to over the last two races to compensate for things that weren't there that the car was not doing naturally um here's another good little observation to share uh talking the opening of the show about romain being i'm sorry on brand new firestone alternates and carving up uh time on alex who is on used primaries well want to know who closed the race on used primaries as well one pato award same as marcus erickson uh same as simon pagino both of those i'm sorry all three of those drivers were knocked off with relative ease by going by them so just sharing here that what pato experienced to close the race with a lack of adequate grip was no different than what uh, a number of others on the same exact type of used firestone primaries dealt with as well what we had over the last two weekends and this is why we're going into long beach with alex Pillow sitting fairly pretty when it comes to uh the championship situation again hasn't won it no guarantee but he's at least not sweating bullets uh going into the race the reason this has happened is to my considerable surprise at portland after they had a very very strong test there i mean pato when i spoke to him after their test at portland he was floating he was so happy uh they had a bad weekend y'all so if you look at what ended up being a bad weekend in nashville right uh finished 13th there wasn't pretty took a hit but then you think about all right strong rebound the uh, second indy grand prix while polo at his motor blow up uh, you then think about a really strong charge to second at Gateway, the Worldwide Technologies Raceway uh, oval there, while Alex got taken out by VK. Really strong rebound 
with a pair of races after Nashville. All of a sudden, he's the championship leader coming into Portland, and I'm thinking, ooh, I know Ganassi tested here. I know they were really happy, but Pato, he's just saying like, wow, we found some things that, I mean, I can't tell you what they are. Huge. So in the back of my head, I'm like, all right, Polo, this could be lights out, man. There's no way that Pato is going to win the championship at Portland, but just I thought he was going to put a hurting on the Ganassi team. Exact opposite happened for reasons I don't know. I will have to admit I haven't asked. I just didn't think to ask till now. Um, Try and do a little bit of a post-race diagnosis, but they were not great with the five car at Portland. I finished 14th, I think. And really, that was the the first bullet wound in a foot, uh, the championship foot. And you heard him talk about, look, uh, we drove like mad. We tried to get everything out of it that we could. And 14th is what they're left with. As Alex Pole (laughs) win uh, just made an amazing weekend for himself. And so I'm thinking there's no way. We're going to have this happen twice in a row where qualifying wasn't great for Pato. And when I say qualifying wasn't great, I'm thinking if the kid isn't on pole or second or third, like there's, there's something seriously wrong. He wasn't first or second or third. And again, he wasn't, you know, uh, miles, light years, whatever you want to call it behind, but just enough at Laguna here for me to see that and go, Oh no. Oh no 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 no! We've got uh, we've got some some problems here, Houston, and I don't know if this is going to be resolved by the time we get to the race. Would think, like I mentioned about Alex, how even though they're off a tenth or two to the Andretti cars, they weren't going to go crazy radical and uh, make you know insane changes uh, for the race. I would not expect the uh, Aero McLaren SP team to do the same with Pato, uh, but I would have expected them to... They were far enough off in qualifying where it really did seem like uh, they would need to come up with something fairly drastic to overcome whatever they were missing. And while Pato did his usual race-like heck to improve things for himself... It was also really clear uh, to a greater degree in terms of the separation between Polo and Herta. It was very clear that what Pato had to work with was a much greater separation uh, to being towards the front of the field. So, again, I just put all these things together and it does stand out, Sean, that the team missed. He mentioned after the race, the only positive, the, you know, the good thing was he felt like they got a hundred percent out of that car uh, that it had to offer. And when you have a driver saying that, you never hear that from the winner, right? You never hear them saying, "Well, at least we got all of it out, all that we could out of it." Um, was for sure not uh, not everything that he wanted, but I can tell you that. The kid never quits. That That's a pretty amazing thing. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, he might get a little chippy. He might not be super happy, right? But 
the guy's going to give it his all, and there's often a lot of entertainment that comes with it. So last little quick note here, and it's just trying to bring you a little more the reality of, of what teams and drivers go through. What Pato needed at Monterey was pole in the point for pole or front row, something like that, where you go, okay, you got a real shot at victory here. Uh, he qualified sixth. It's an exaggeration, but he may may as well have qualified 60th. Because when you're sixth, yes, you are in the Firestone Fast Six, and that is great. But when you are sixth, you are often in a situation where you're far enough behind, not only on the stopwatch, but in the weekend, where, as I mentioned, uh, you're kind of left to, do we throw a radical change at the car and hope that it pays off in the race? And if it does, great. We're magically competitive in ways that we were not. Now we can hope for a podium or, you know, maybe even better. Or did we just screw ourselves up even more? And now we are truly fighting over 60th place. It's a really hard position to be in because you're not so close to the front to where you feel like a couple of smart changes and you can get it and you're not far enough from the back or you're not close enough to the back to warrant the, all right, Hail Mary time. It's all we can do. It's such an uncomfortable spot to be in being sixth when you're in the title hunt and you know that every point matters. You can't really go crazy and really gamble because the downside means you are out of the championship hunt, but you're missing enough from the beginning that you kind of realize that unless you magically throw a setup at the car that has it performing like it hasn't been, and it's a, it, again, when I say Hail Mary, I mean that really, like you're praying what you come up with works. You just realize that if I'm having to rely on prayer and Hail Marys to have a chance at winning, we might just be better off working with what we got, try and improve it a little bit, hope that we can go for it a little bit, but uh, we're toast. We came in and found out that we rolled off the trailer missing a tenth or two, whatever it is, that little deficit. Yeah, we can find fractions of it, but their fate was sealed a little bit too early uh, in the weekend for them to really have a whole lot they could do to change that. So, yeah, um, I just hope, I really, really and truly hope that Long Beach is entertaining. I don't want anything bad to happen to any of the title contenders or anybody for that fact, but um, I just want this to be a good race, even if it looks like it might be a little bit anticlimactic. Where do we go next? Uh, Justin Vroom, my three-year-old, has asserted that Spot Chickson is his favorite driver. Spot Chickson, if there is not a pet... In Scott Dixon's household. The next one, if that next pet is not named Spot Chickson, I'm going to be very mad at that guy. Uh, Justin says, other than making it as hard for Pato to pass as possible, which, by the way, uh, wouldn't they be doing that anyway? What are some of the things that, quote, Spot 
Marcus Erickson and Jimmy Johnson uh, would be able to do to help Alex win the championship. Here's the thing, Justin. Pato could have a perfect weekend, score maximum points, and all Alex has to do is finish. I'll have to I'll look at the numbers again, but roughly like top 12, right? And if you look, and I'll actually look at it so I can speak without total uh, idiocy. If you look at Alex's year uh, through the first, what, 15 races, he's had 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 of those 15 races. He has finished inside the top 10. Uh, and I think all those that I just counted off were actually inside the top seven. So 11 of the guys, 15 races have been inside the top seven. And he only needs to finish like again, 11th or 12th. If Pato has a perfect weekend, if Pato wins the race, but doesn't get the pole, doesn't lead the most laps, like uh, it's some crazy number. Like, dude, basically just push your car around for a couple laps and you're good. Um, um, I'm exaggerating. I forget what it is. He has to finish like 16th or 14th or whatever, but it's like, as long as your motor doesn't blow up and someone doesn't crash you out, you're pretty much good. If Pato has a perfect weekend, if Pato has anything less than a perfect weekend, more or less, if Pato fails to win, Alex is your champion. Again, there's all kinds of little things. And, you know, if he gets a point here for this, and again, there's a lot of little minutia to consider, but just in a very general sense, I don't know if Alex needs his teammates to do much. I don't know if Jimmy needs to make it hard for so-and-so to pass like he did at Laguna. I don't know if good old Spot Chickson, that's the best name, Justin, uh, we need to get some spot chicks and shirts made up for sure. Um, I don't know if they need to do a lot. Obvious statement alert. Other than Pato being in the lead in Pato, when he leads tends to lead with authority. So if Pato is anything other than leading and there's a chance for a Ganassi driver to be in front, they're going to do that. But it's one of those things where seriously, in almost every reason, reasonable scenario, as I have a hiccup for whatever reason, unless Pato is leading, I don't know if they need to do much. Uh, I really don't. And I would say as well, if Pato is leading and he's coming up on a Ganassi driver where he might lap them, I really hope... They play fair, and I, I'm sure they will. But what I don't want to see is someone on the Ganassi side or someone on the Air McLaren SP side monkeying with the natural order of things. If Pelot's leading by however much, and maybe he comes up on Rosenquist, Quist, I love Felix. And I totally get the urge to try and impede Alex, but I just don't want to see, I don't want dirtiness to be involved here. 
one of these two kids, amazing, truly amazing kids, are going to be your champion. I just don't want idiocy to cloud or darken uh, or sour any aspect of it. If Pato is on the way to victory and there's a Ganassi driver that might hinder that in some way, please do me a favor and don't. I want that kid to win because he earned it. Uh, I don't want him to lose because somebody decided to embrace uh, the, the lower versions of themselves. And again, both sides. I, I would love nothing more than for Zach Brown and Chip Ganassi to shake hands before the race and say, hey, telling all of our, all of our people, you let this happen however it's meant to happen. Um, do I think that's going to happen? No. Would I love to see it? And would I think that would actually make some pretty good headlines uh, on its own? I would. So maybe if I remember, and I probably won't, when I see Zach and when I see Chip, I'll ask the two of them if they'll maybe come to a gentleman's agreement. We'll have to see. Uh, let's see. Dynamodog from Reddit says, are there any leader circle entrants we should be watching closely towards the back of the pack to see if they make the cut? Uh, let me just look now. Normally I drop that into my little cool down lap thing, but uh, I don't know um if there's anything we need to be worried about but let me uh let me I've actually got that open on the indycar timing uh thing here go to point reports let's go to points on trente and let's see who we have if anything has shifted since portland that would be remarkable no uh interestingly though uh, as I've mentioned and learned that I was wrong the whole time about part-time entrants being eligible for leader circle contracts if they finish inside the top 22. Um, the number 45, Ray Hollard, and Lanigan Honda is still sitting 22nd in entrant points ahead of the uh, 48 Chip Ganassi Racing Honda. But since we know that the uh, 45 as a part-timer can't win a leader circle contract, that does by default move the uh, the Ganassi 48 car into 22nd, and they sh will slash should, they're going to get uh, that million-dollar leader circle contract for next year. Why? Well, the, uh, the entry behind them, the 59 Carlin Chevy, is 40 points behind going into the final race, and there is no conceivable way they're going to overcome that and pass the 48. So, yeah, um, it's effectively done. Just got to run that last race. The uh, the number four AJ Foyt racing entry as well. Uh, last in entrant points for the full timer. So uh, that would leave, uh, yes, the 59 Carlin and the four Foyt entries uh, on the outside and no leader circle for next year. So let's see, where do we go here? I'm going to start to, uh, I don't know if wind down, coast down, something down, but uh, we're going to rattle through a few more here. Where do we go? Uh, Macy Chang 25 from Reddit. Got a lot of uh, newish Reddit questions, which I 
love. Uh, let's see. You asked, Marshall, how much conflict do you see in the Andretti paddock next year? Uh, Colton's comment that Rossi, quote, did that to himself can't have gone over well. Uh, and you said you mentioned on a previous podcast that Colton had been somewhat indifferent to Rossi on the grid. Uh, does adding someone like Groshaw help or hurt this dynamic? I'm going to save that last uh, question there, Macy Chang 25, just because the next question uh, poses uh, very, very identical, poses the same thing with a few more shades. I thought it was very interesting as well, that comment. Um, Colton's comment as well that he uh, never felt threatened during the race knowing that the closest threat he had was Rossi granted it's because Colton messed up and uh, put the left side tires out on the dirt in turn four which then gave Rossi a great run on the second lap to try and uh, get by him. Uh, so yeah, Rossi was effectively alongside him in turn five. Didn't last as Alex, uh, got a little loose, a little sideways, uh, car ran up the, the banking of the track there made contact and then spun. Um, I would think that would have been received as a threat in that moment. But as Colton said, in a very declarative manner, he did not feel threatened. So I just say that because <laughs> between the Rossi did that to himself and then saying he never felt threatened when indeed his teammate was the closest threat he had all day long, noting again what I witnessed there being kind of a something non-connectedness there. I haven't asked either about it. We'll just say this before getting back to the, the Colton comments part. Uh, did get a chance to see Alexander a little bit uh, for a minute or two on Saturday and said hello and, you know, quick little chat about something, then he had to go. But haven't had a chance to catch up with him on a real level about anything for a little while. So I Doubt that's going to happen this weekend because Long Beach is truly a blur for everybody involved. But hopefully in the offseason, maybe you can uh, dive into this a little bit. Uh, I'll ask Colton as well. I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you the answers because often these kinds of conversations take place in confidence. Doesn't mean what I learn won't inform views, opinions, and whatnot, but... There's something here that just doesn't quite jive. And I'm not sure what it is. Is it mostly made up in my head? Is it 100% made up in my head? I don't know. But I do know that Alexander Rossi is one of the most perceptive drivers of his era. Like the guy, again, I'm, I'm repeating myself a little bit here. Crazy smart, right? So he, he's blessed with vast intelligence. He is... An observer extraordinaire. Any little word, a mannerism, uh, a hitch in someone's step, the lilt in their voice, like the guy is 
forensic in how he observes and deconstructs life, <laughs> how things are said, written, just on and on and on. So this guy, really impressive in that regard. I say those things because I wonder, I know Colton also being a master observer and very intentional with his words. Just saying. He has all kinds of things he could or could not say. Some of the things that I've just discussed here, the comment about Rossi did that to himself, that he never felt threatened. It's not like Colton is sitting there in advance, preconceived, saying, I'm going to say some things in a press conference while Alex is not here, but knowing that he will eventually hear them and it will rankle him in some way, shape, or form. I would not say that there's any kind of calculatedness like that going on. But do I think there's a little bit of, of balls and bravado and hierarchical messaging taking place? Hey, man, not even threatened by you. Ah, you did that to yourself, dude. Are you kidding? You're going to try that on me? Uh, don't mistake the fact that Colton is 37 pounds. <laughs> okay. Kidding, but you know, skinny kid. He's non-imposing physically. But I'm telling you what, the the thing inside of him that rages behind the steering wheel, the thing behind him that has been earned, that ego. Right? And he's not a big ego guy. Don't get me wrong. He's not an outward, I'm the best kick you're at. Right? That's not him. Uh, truly, that's not him. He, he's not a Deion Sanders type or name some other athlete where you go, oh, okay, they, look, we know you're great, but damn, do you really have to tell us all the time? He's not that guy. But there is a quieter inner thing that he lets out where you go, oh, okay. You know who else does that? Scott Dixon. Nicest guy in the world. Assassin as a competitor. Uh, you think he looks at anybody else in the paddock and says, oh, they're better than me. Oh, yeah. right. Granted, Pelot's giving him the business this year. All he can handle and more. Got that. Just saying. Uh, Colton has a thing with that inner confidence, that inner bravado that he lets out a little bit when he says things like did that to himself, never threatened. Those are the little expressions of this brutal, I want to murder you competitor that lives inside of him. Scott Dixon is identical. Dario Franchitti, identical. And run Pato Award, identical. Pato, not so much in saying the saying those sharp cutting things though um colton for sure backs them up though so as i'm riding in my my cool down lap thing the only real disappointment i had from sunday's race is we did not get to see this andretti one two in qualifying colton on the pole rossi 
outside, P2, and see that play out over 95 laps. I was dreaming of a Andretti Autosport reckoning between those two, knowing that from what I think I've seen, a little bit of chippiness, more Colton back at Rossi. I don't know. I don't genuinely don't know their inner dynamic. Don't know if there's any conflict. Don't know if it's all just in my head and none of it's real. But I was looking forward to seeing Colton and Rossi go at it in equal cars to brutally talented guys. Rossi was the man when Colton got there. Rossi had taken control, the baton among drivers. He had taken that from Hunter Ray. He'd become the man. Hunter Ray was the man for a really long time. Rossi took that from him. Colton then took that from Rossi. It's been a little while since we've had these two on the same piece of track able to show us for the majority of a race, whatever, where they're at, both in speed, in composure, in decision-making, in all the things that separate one driver from another by little fractions of a second each lap. I was so looking forward to that. And the dang thing lasted one lap and five turns. Did I think Colton was going to make a little statement? And whatever the amount was, I mean, granted, he pulled out like 1.2 seconds on Rossi on the first lap. But still, did I think Colton might have done some pretty amazing work and possibly separated himself from Rossi a little bit? Possibly. I mean, I thought that might happen. But at the same time, knowing that Alex has had a terrible season, almost two, Privately, I was hoping he was going to have a great race. And whether that was passing Colton and winning or having a strong second, whatever it was, all I know is I wanted to see that. As a boxing fan, an MMA fan, to me, this is one of those like showcase events of the year. You know, the UFC, it feels like they're on every dang weekend. Like to the point where you go, okay, I don't even know who your headliners are, but okay, whatever. But there's one or two or three UFC events per year where you're like, stop everything. I have to see how this match plays out. In my head, that's what Sunday was meant to be. And the thing didn't even get out of the first round. Like It was over in the first 30 seconds. Uh, TKO, whatever it was. The guy slipped and fell and knocked himself out. Whatever. But... I hate those UFC events. I haven't got had a chance to watch live ones for a while, but regardless, uh, the pay-per-views at least. But, yeah, there have been some of those where you're like, oh, this is going to be the best ever. Oh, that sucked. What? Oh, <laughs> didn't live up to the to the billing. That's what we had here. So, I don't know. Would I love to see a Andretti 1-2 in qualifying with these two again at Long Beach and see if we can get a real feel as to whether... Rossi can match and exceed Colton or if Colton's just going to maybe put that final nail in the, the concept that uh, anyone other than him is the number one driver at Andretti. I pray, I pray. So let's move to the next question here in the theme. 
and I hope I don't murder your name. Please tell me how to not murder if I do. Tij, T-H-I-J-S, Tij, Berendrecht, Berendrecht? I'm not sure, but I, yeah, I'm so terrible. Uh, hey, MP, could Grosha elevate Andretti to become the best team when he joins the number 28, joins the number 28 Honda? Seems that he has raised the level of Dale Coin Racing, which seems, uh, which lately seems to work uh, to Ed Jones' benefit as well. And he says, and damn, he did some great passes in the race. He'll definitely be a contender next year. Agree 100%. Uh, have heard, I don't know if it's accurate, just telling you things that I've heard, that Ryan Hunter Ray's longtime race engineer, Ray Gosselin, I don't know if uh, it will be a total driver and engineer change there. Uh, I've heard, as I mentioned last week, conflicting uh suggestions that Romain's Dale Coin racing engineer Olivier Boisson will both stay with Coin or and go with him to Andretti can tell you that if I am Michael Andretti and for his sake thankfully I'm not if I'm Michael Andretti I am doing whatever I need to make sure that uh the driver in question and engineer in question come together as a package because we know how well they work together so that's key. Uh, I don't want Dale to be without Olivier because without Olivier, that team really struggles to offer a driver a, uh, a really competitive scenario in uh, the car he'll be leaving. But again, who knows who they might get for it and what engineer might come with that driver. But um, how's this? Your exact question is the exact thing i've had floating around in the back of my head for a little while andretti autosport has been very similar for quite some time there's been some changes with assistant engineers and you know there's been some of that but on the race engineering front there has been uh, a lot of the same folks for a long time we've also had similar ish drivers for quite a while um whether it's someone like Hinch coming back, whatever, whatever. But team's been in a situation where it has not had a superstar level driver new to them, fresh eyes on how the organization works, how it does its business, how it does everything that can contribute well-earned ideas on how to do things better. So, if we think about Rossi coming in, man, that guy came in with tons of skill, uh, Formula One experience, having seen a lot of things, and I think just truly elevated lots of stuff as a result of all that he brought, the, uh, the tangibles behind the car and the intangibles outside of it. Uh, Colton coming in, he's brought all kinds of stuff as a rookie. Uh, he has pushed, he is very clear on what he needs there's a lot of things that he does that elevates that team um interestingly what have we seen since he joined andretti autosport as a full-time driver he in in his entry that's been the best at the team uh, last year in particular vying for a championship in his first full season at Andretti Autosport, 
right? Uh, you got to respect the guy who finishes third in the standings uh, in his first full season with the mother team the year before with the satellite team using Andretti technologies uh, and Andretti setups finished seventh. So look at this year where he's currently the top performing driver yet again and not by a small margin. Uh, we could also, you know, if we're honest and we look at last year and how things ended up championship-wise, knowing that, again, Rossi had a lot of misfortune and so did Hunter Ray and whatnot. But you know, last year, Colton finished third in the standings. Closest and dready teammate, Rossi in ninth, Hunter Ray in tenth. Uh, you look at where we're at this year, hasn't been as strong a year for Colton. Uh, overall, granted, uh, he has two wins this season. That's pretty darn impressive, but he's sixth in the standings. Rossi is yet again, the closest down in 10th. Um, so while it's clear that Colton brings something rather amazing, the overarching question here of can an amazing driver elevate the overall organization? I don't know. And I'm not laying blame at Colton's feet here. Uh, he's been their best by a considerable margin over the last two seasons since he got there. Has that led to the rest of the organization coming up? I haven't seen it. Uh, but does that speak to Colton and his race engineer, Nathan O'Rourke? Or is that the structure within the team where, you know, again, uh, what they're learning and thinking doesn't necessarily uh, get passed around or adopted completely. I mean, that wouldn't fit how I believe I know that they work. What Colton wants and need from a car different enough to where it wouldn't really apply to someone else's setup needs. Again, I'm you know not totally sure in this area, but I do believe that someone like Romain, who brings the highest level of experience to the team of any driver that I can think of in forever, I do think there's something there, right? 35 years old, not 34 as I wrote in the story today. Fix that. Thanks to uh, uh, the correction there from a, a kind reader. 35-year-old um, guy, more than a decade of Formula One experience. Uh, Got to believe he's going to come in and say, hey, it's really cool how you do this but let's not <laughs> anymore. Let's do it this other way. Hey, engineering wise, this is how you arrive at decisions. Hey, R and D wise. I see that you're over here doing this. Have you ever considered modifying that a little bit to do that? Uh, it's amazing all the ways that a highly skilled and highly experienced driver like a Groschamp can influence a team. And it's just from the, all right, I've spent a zillion hours of my life in driver-in-the-loop simulators. And cool, let's look at the processes of how you run your DIL sessions. And maybe there's some things I would suggest about how we do that differently. Uh, we could extrapolate this out to a lot of different areas, but from how you debrief within your own car entry effort to how you debrief as a group to trying to find the commonalities 
among drivers and setups where you know, hey, we have similar driving styles and wants, so I know that me and you, we could probably be on the same page, and you over there, and you two have similar or maybe dissimilar. Let's figure out which one of us are on the same setup island. Uh, Are you on one slightly farther away? Do we keep fighting trying to find a magic setup that works for everyone, or do we split our resources to maximize what me and you over there, this is what we need to go fast, and this is what you all need over here, and let's stop beating our head against the wall trying to find something that works for everyone and branch off. Like it's Again, just some of these things where you go, hey, big experience, big skill. To my knowledge, he is certainly not afraid to say, uh, nope, <laughs> don't do that, do this. Um, I look forward to this. Only little modifier to close is they're a four-car team. They have a pretty significant managerial branch. Fair amount of people looking after things in charge of things. Fair amount of engineers in charge of their stuff. It's a big organization. It's a lot of voices. It's a lot of flex. There's a lot of authority. Of the many things that I wonder, I look at some of the other bigger teams as well and realize that Some are a little bit more streamlined when it comes to voices that move, that that turn the ship. And I do wonder if the Andretti team already has an overabundance of big, loud, influential voices. Would someone like a Groschamp, who I would think could really elevate their entire game, as you mentioned, where would that voice fit if it's one of 10 or 20 <laughs> uh, highly influential voices? Uh, possibly some of them highly entrenched as well. Compare that to some other teams that will have new drivers coming to them or have had new drivers come to them where they go, hey, yep, need you to learn our culture, need you to understand how we do things, but tell us. What do, you, what do you like? What don't you like? What things can or can't we do better? Like, we'll be more open uh, to you. Uh, we're not saying we're going to do everything you say, but we're going to be more of an open book for you coming in because we want to hear, hey, why in the world do you do that that way? Compared to, uh, got a lot of voices that are probably going to push back and tell you that the way we do it's best and we appreciate your input, but yeah, no. Again, culturally, that's what I'm going to be fascinated to see what we get when we uh, arrive at St. Petersburg next year at the end of February, Tij, is to find out. We know Groschon has a ton to offer. Is the interpersonal managerial structure one that is ready to receive it and act upon it in the same way that some other big teams might be a little bit more open and ready to change their behavior. Um, 
straight off the bat to see if that makes them better. Uh, Philly Born American says, MP, has your French fry got an extension yet from Foyt? And if not, it's coming, right? Well, as we mentioned on the show yesterday, I think, uh, no extension that I know of yet or that he knows of yet. A little bit of a tense time right now, my man. So I fly down to Long Beach Thursday night, and I hope by then uh, or by Friday, we collectively, the Sebastian Bourdais fan club, uh, hope we have a direction. Because as he mentioned, I think on our Saturday show, was it Friday? I don't remember. Talking about silly season a little bit. I've yelled it, not yelled, but I've been like, hey, we need to know if you're going to be back or not. Because if not, then we need to do something at Long Beach to celebrate your career. Because to my knowledge, if it isn't Foyt, there's either nothing else out there waiting for him that interests him. Um, or, yeah, I guess that's maybe the right way to put it. Are there some options maybe at some other places where he'd be like, nah, I'm good? I think so. Uh, working with the Foyt's, this being kind of a building thing, which I know he enjoys, you know, he knows that he's not getting a call from Chip to drive a fifth Ganassi car. Penske's not calling saying, I'm going to pay for your season because I just love you uh, to be in our fourth car. Um, so if it's not Foyt, I don't think it's going to be anyone else. So that's just the little bit of awkward thing of like, I really, truly hope our last hamburger and french fry show video of the season on Sunday is not also our final in the IndyCar paddock. We'll keep doing them in whatever paddock he's in, but I just really don't want that to stop in IndyCar. It's not like I can't ask someone else to do it with me. I don't know who it would be, what their nationality would be, and if there was a food we would attach with their name. Just saying. <laughs> like all of those who have volunteered to replace Robin Miller at Racer and the couple who have volunteered to be in our videos to replace him. Um, there's no replacing the French fry. I don't want someone other than the French fry. We could absolutely do it with someone else. If there's a need, we may do it because there's still a need to do our, our daily wrap-up videos for Racer. But, man, I don't want it to be anyone other than Seb. I do also have to acknowledge that you know he's not intending to be an IndyCar driver for the rest of his life, so it's going to come to an end. Uh, I just hope it's not right now. Uh, let's see uh k likes burgers <laughs> from reddit i've read in places that dhl is definitely out as a sponsor for the 28 andretti autosport car and other places are saying that they're staying because they want to be associated for groschon what's the truth uh anybody saying that dhl is out as a sponsor does not know what they're talking about that i can say uh as for staying because of groschon uh, I would think that Groschon would be a valuable asset for them, knowing that he uh, can appeal to both the domestic and international side of DHL, probably in ways um, that others might not. So, yeah, 
unless there is something that has just changed, I don't believe it has, uh, you can look forward to seeing DHL attached to the entry next year. Would that be as the primary sponsor? Can't tell you. Would surprise me. Only thing I've heard for the last two years is DHL is stepping back a little more and a little more. So uh, I don't know if we're going to see an all-yellow car next year. Um, but yeah, nothing I've heard has said they are gone. Uh, where else are we going here? Uh, Stitch Turner, how you doing, Stitch? Looks probable that for the third season in a row, the lights champ is going to come from Andretti Autosport. Yet none of those championship drivers will have turned a lap for them in any car. He says award with uh, the Harding team. The end of 2018 maybe is a little bit of a uh, exception here. Says, are they mismanaging their driver development program? Um, I wouldn't say mismanaging. Uh, if you think about Devlin DeFrancesco, who I've told y'all is going to be replacing Hinch for quite some time, while not the Lights champion, he will be stepping up to the team from Indy Lights. Uh, while not a champion, Colton Herta, P2 to Pato, certainly stepped up in the Andretti hemisphere with the Harding Steinbrenner thing. Pato, the champ with Andretti, was meant to until Harding um, pooped the bed on the promise of funding. So, you know, a couple things there, I would say. I don't know if I'd, I'd really make that uh, assertion so much, Stitch. If there's been a limitation, it's been they've had multi-year contracts in their IndyCar seats that has made it hard to just automatically slot their newest, whomever it might be, Indy Lights champion straight into the IndyCar series. And so ask you, for example, I am confident a thousand percent Michael would have put him in an IndyCar uh, if he was able to do so, was not, and so off he went to McLaren. Um, if Kirkwood wins the title, that'd be great, and he'll have $1.3 million to spend. There are no seats that I know of that are available at uh, Andretti Autosport for him to slide into. So I don't know if I'd call it mismanagement. It's just they don't want to go to five cars, and I can understand that. Four is already, you know, with Penske going to three, I know Ganassi's at four, Jimmy Johnson being that fourth, and there's a bit of a ride share going on there, but I do wonder if we're going to see three entries become a more common thing and uh, for those teams running four, uh, just because, yeah, m mentioned this with Zach Brown in a video interview I'll, I'll publish here soon, hopefully, but there is a feeling that three's the sweet spot. And four might be a place where there's, you know, often one or two cars that are a little bit orphaned in terms of being fully competitive uh, or as competitive as the top one or two entries in that team. So, again, just saying here that their Indy Lights program, very successful, achieves a lot of great things. Uh, we do have, on occasion, their drivers who step up from Lights to the IndyCar team itself, but... I'd say it's just more a, a case of uh, a lack of vacancy than anything, not necessarily mismanagement. All right, we are over our two-hour limit here, so let me grab one or two more here. 
uh, a practice observer you're asking about beam wings that would be a great resubmission during the off season um daniel summersgill come back to here uh saw a little bit of a testy exchange between someone and uh kind person that is andy de francesco devlin's dad uh, andy says devlin's currently sixth in lights two races to go but seems destined to land in the number 29 andretti seat he is uh, says kyle kirkwood leads the standings but with no guarantee of a full-time seat is indycar able to step in if they feel a driver isn't ready for the series of course i don't know if i would attach that concern to devlin though i realize that as i've mentioned many times uh, i think he would be perfectly set for indycar with two years of lights experience under his belt i know that his dad has been keen on this being a one-year thing and that's what's going to happen but if we look at a dalton kellett who had 19 years in indy lights and i'm exaggerating but if you look at someone like dalton dalton is never going to win an indycar race uh could he stand on a podium in some sort of really bizarre situation maybe dalton does not possess anything like the kind of talent of pretty much anybody he's racing against and yet even though he is not destined for success and victories in indycar he is capable of running at the back without making a nuisance out of himself making drivers hate him and try and punt him off the track uh, at a retribution and that's perfectly fine if there are 27 cars entered in a race you need people to fill all 27 positions and there's ultimately someone who's 27th i don't think devlin's going to be that guy i think devlin is certainly going to be high teens low 20s do i think he's going to be in that situation i mention every so often y'all know maybe know that i'm lifelong basketball fan uh, devlin is is standing out like that kid who's done one year in college and decided time to go to the pros and you go cool you have a very solid set of skills they're not fully developed yet so because you've made this decision to go early probably not going to be a starter probably going to be second string maybe third string you're going to be coming off the bench a lot you're going to spend your rookie nba season and probably your second maybe even your third learning and building all those extra pieces of your professional foundation in the game not as a starter sometimes in garbage time but for what you did not build in amateur arena junior formula well you're going to have to do that in the big leagues and it's going to come with some painful painful growth uh, and growing pains so yeah i think that's going to be part of devlin's reality they're not blind to that fact timing has worked out with the seat opening up 
uh, for them to step into it. And so I get why they're doing what they're doing. No guarantee you'd be open next year. Um, also, from what I understand, we're talking funding. You know, uh, the DeFrancescos, they are pretty incredible when it comes to business. And success is there. I think they're coming into the team, certainly at the same time as Romain. would say I think there's going to be a lot of good business-to-business stuff happening that makes everything operate well. Uh, within Andretti Autosport. So I get the timing, even if I don't fully agree with it. Not that my opinion matters, but... So I don't see this in that light, Daniel, where IndyCar is going to have to step in. Uh, Devlin, I think, is going to be just fine. I'm just going to temper my expectations for him as a rookie, probably as a sophomore, and say, okay, let's get to year three. That's where we're going to see whatever you got. As that's as good as you're going to be, we're going to see that in year three. So not being too harsh uh, in, as a rookie or a sophomore, I think that's just going to be a little bit key. Uh, Bob Fay, you're talking about Road to Indy coming to Lime Rock. Uh, I'd love to see it, but I, I can't imagine it's going to happen anytime soon. Darren Dubois, uh, you're wanting some context about things that were mentioned uh, about Sonoma Raceway and their photographer's policy. Um, I don't have any update from that. I haven't checked in. Uh, I try not to curse too much on the show, but I'll tell you, I don't give a shit right now. Um, I'll try, maybe try and remember to check in. Maybe you can remind me. But yeah, uh, I, as I said, and they don't even know or care. So I don't say this like it matters, but I can tell you, I have no intention of doing anything at that track covering anything they do if that still stands um but i would hope that uh smarter brains have uh have won out uh let's see jake goodwin hey marshall all the best to you thank you uh and your awesome wife even better and those pesky felines <sighs> i need help y'all uh says curious question that is off topic do you know if any of the Pareto autosport crew from this, this year's Indy 500, have found full-time positions in IndyCar? That's an awesome question, Jake. I have not seen uh, any women on IndyCar teams that stood out as new to me after the 500. Uh, definitely there are more women working on pit lane, uh, which is awesome truly awesome but i can't say if i recall any visual matches of like oh hey she was the right rear tire changer or whatever on simona's car and she's over here so uh maybe if beth and i happen to speak in the near future we haven't spoken since uh, may um i'll ask if she knows of that uh, happening gonna close here gonna close the show with uh our guy Mentioned him in the beginning. Going to open this here to close. Jim Kaiser. But no, you're being trumped by Jamie Bender. Getting in on your game of haiku. Holy cow. Jim Kaiser, who does our Q&A for us, his introduction to the show is doing weekly haiku for us. And guess what? He is not leading off the close to the show because Jamie Bender's beating him to it. It says, uh, 
I know it won't be read, but since my kids are learning the art of haiku today, here it goes. Well, we're, we're defying expectations. We're defying everything, Jamie, just like IndyCar's useless motto for the season. We're reading it. Here's your haiku. Colton Herta won. Alex Pillow came second. It was a good race. That's pretty darn good. Kids should be proud, Jamie, for sure. But we're not going to let that stand, right? Because you're, you're trampling on Jim's territory. So Q&A list assemblers priority. Always going to go to Jim Kaiser, who responds to you. And so Jim, putting together the cues and closing the show here, says, Jamie, said with much love, Hey, Jamie Bender, one thing you must remember, I'm the haiku man. <laughs> Look at that. We have the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A shows version of Colton Herta and Alexander Rossi. Yeah, it's a little, little, little knives out, a little stabby here to close the show. On the topic of haiku fights, what? That's what we have here on this crazy podcast of mine. Powered by y'all. Powered by the Cooper Tires Company. Uh, thank you, Cooper Tires. Justice Brothers, just love you guys so much. Made use of your JB80 lubricant, by the way, today. Why JB80? It's twice as good as WD-40, y'all. That's a fact. That's like in the U.S. Constitution. Finally, torontomotorsports.com. Thanks. Just you guys. All right. It's one. It's you. It's it's Derek. But you guys are amazing. You really are. Um, so thankful that uh, we all get to do this together and have fun together. One more time to those of you who've just been so kind um, to my wife and I. Uh, stop it. We don't, I don't deserve it. She deserves all of it. But uh, y'all are silly. I don't know. I almost need to pick like another IndyCar reporter for y'all to just fill with love. Because actually, now that I say that, I I really can't think of a couple where I'm like, yeah, there's some pretty sad people who don't have enough love in their life and they could actually use just some totally out of left field warmth. Um, so maybe they'll feel a little a little bit of the, uh, the super, super sunshine that y'all rain down. Uh, on Mrs. Pruitt and I. All right, well, this is our show. Kyle Kirkwood, that's right, Indy Lights Championship leader right now. Don't know if he's going to win the thing, but uh, I figure we're going into the final IndyCar race of the year. I certainly expect Kyle to be in contention for a seat. And, hey, let's get to know him a little bit uh, before we get to wrap the season and uh, move on with our lives. I'll speak to y'all in a day or two.